0: Good morning. We're working our way through John's letter, and as we've been indicating, John outlived the rest of the apostles by almost half a century. And as an apostle, he heard Jesus and saw him and touched him. So that makes John, at the end of the first century, the last living apostle. That means he is the final eyewitness. He wrote this letter toward the end of the first century and he attempts to do something which would seem to be pretty simple, but is actually much tougher than it seems. He tries to define what it means to be a child of God, how it happens, What should characterize our life if we're children of God? Um, We looked last week. He seems to indicate the children of God are perfect. How many people here are perfect? (laughs) I don't think so. He says, um, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And, To say he keeps on sinning, that's what the text indicates. Really what the text says? No one born of God sins, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's been born of God. And people try to figure, how in the world can that be? I mean, we can't be sinless. But he goes on, everyone who sins practices lawlessness. For sin is lawlessness, and he seems to say the children of God... Don't sin. What we saw last week though, when it says sin is lawlessness, in Jewish thought, sin is a violation of the revealed will of God. And so, because it's a violation of the revealed will of God, in that sense, it's lawlessness. And what we talked about is because of Christ and what He did, if we are, if we put our faith in Him, something very significant happens. It means that we are under a new covenant and that we are out from under the old covenant, which means we are no longer under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. Now, what the old covenant law said, obey the commandments and you'll be blessed. Disobey the commandments and you'll be cursed. And again, some of the commandments are a little bit, Easier to break than others. The last of the commandment is don't covet. Don't covet what somebody else has. That's almost an well, not almost. That's an impossible to to obey commandment. And so what we learn though is that if we're out from under the jurisdiction of law, then something very significant happens. What we described it's like a a a foreign diplomat in our country, and what we asked is a question, do foreign diplomats break our law? Do foreign diplomats break our law? It all depends what you're looking at. Now, if you look at the behavior of foreign diplomats, do foreign diplomats break our law? Absolutely. But in the eyes of the court, do foreign diplomats break our law? They don't, because they're not under the jurisdiction of law. So, in that sense, they don't. And I think that's John's point. Do Christians break God's law? Let me ask you. Do you break God's law? Do you hate? Do you covet? Of course you do. We all do. So, if we look at our lives, then we sin. But... In the court of God, if you believe in Christ, do you break the law in God's eyes? You can't break a law that you're not under. And so in that sense, what John seems to say, children of God don't sin. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. It means that their imperfections are not sins. Sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Apart from law, there is no transgression And what we're going to see is, okay, so why would we even care about that? That's going to be very important as we think about the whole subject of being loving, which is where John goes. He goes from talking about children of God and sin to children of God love. Uh, Look what it says in 1 John 3, 11 through 24. It says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. in word or talk, but indeed and in truth. By this we shall know we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit he has given us. Before John elaborates on love, he talks about hate. That's what he says. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Um, One thing about children of God, in terms of characterizing children of God, is that children of God are hated by the world. In order to be able to figure out what John's saying, we need to understand what he means when he talks about the world and what he does to help us to figure out what the world that he is thinking about is characterized by, he gives us an example so that we can be clear about it, Cain. And so when we think about the world, and we think about the hatred of the world, what John focuses us on is an account in the book of Genesis of Cain and his brother Abel. Cain hated Abel. Cain represents the world. And so we look at that, and let's try to figure out in what way, what was that hatred about? Um, It says, I'll just read Genesis 4, read the account, and let's see what we can learn from this. Again, why would we look at this? Because Cain represents the world and its hatred. And so we can figure out what it means to be a child of God be hated by looking at this. It says, Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel Brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering He did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. One observation we make about the world, when we think about the world, what we usually think about is people with a bunch of money, or we usually think of secular things as opposed to sacred things. But in this context, the world that John describes is not a world, is not people that don't care about God. It's people that do. Did Cain care about God? Yeah, that's why he offered an offering. It's He wanted his offering to be accepted. So, the world that John is describing, the world that will have issues with children of God, is not the secular world. It's the sacred world. It's the world that tries hard to be appealing to God, that offers things up, and they, again, they care about, it. okay, let's go on. So that's one thing we learned, isn't it? The world is not banks and bars. It's religions and churches. That's the world that's going to have issues with children of God. Interesting. Um, what else can we learn? It says then the Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it." Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Another observation we make is that the hatred of the world is envious. There's two kinds of envy. the simple envy, which is, I want what you have. Then simple envy turns into something different. And again, if we look at Cain and Abel and They offer up their offerings, and frankly, there's some people that try to say, "Well, Cain's offering was bad because it was crops, and that was it." And it doesn't seem like there's any real logical reason why one was wanted over another. It's it just that's just the way it was. And um, what ended up happening when Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's wasn't, if we had frozen. The scene right there, and we kind of, you know, we're walking through the garden, and we're kind of looking around. Beautiful place. Uh, We come across. Well, we can't be in the garden because they're out of the garden by this time. So, anyways, so we come to Cain and Abel, wherever they are, and we say to Cain, "These I mean, you look kind of down." And if this happens right after he, the offerings are offered up, we said, "Cain, what, what, what is it that you want?" You know what he would have said. I'd like my offering to have been accepted. But let's let that stew a little bit. Let's just, let's just sit there and watch him. And watch Abel's offering being accepted and his offering not accepted. And then he, he kind of looks at Abel and he starts to look crossways at him. You know what's happening now? It's turning from simple envy to infected envy. Simple envy is wanting what another person wants. Infected envy is when I want to Punish, or I want that person who has what I want to suffer in some way. That's what happens to, and that's where the the hatred comes from. Uh, the same murderous envy, that same kind of infected envy, is why the Pharisees opposed Jesus. They not only wanted his popularity, they wanted to hurt him for having the popularity that they wanted. Um, why were Cain's actions unrighteous? Um, it's not clear. You know, we do know Cain was the oldest. And in that culture, if you were the oldest, you had some things that you expected were to come to you. Um, Abel. The word Abel, just what it means, here's what Abel means. Breath, something with no substance, meaningless, worthless, empty, futile, an idol. So, that's what it means. So, who got the offering? Empty got it. Worthless got it. Nothing got it. No substance got it. Now, Cain's the oldest. Now, if you look at Cain, the oldest, and his brother, no substance, meaningless, worthless, empty, futile idol, who would be entitled to have his offering be accepted? You know what? Do you know what his envy was about? Frustrated entitlement. Can you think of anything more galling that when you are entitled to get something and you don't get it? A raise? Respect? Love? You're entitled to get it and you don't get it. You know what's a little more galling than that is when somebody who doesn't is not entitled get it, gets it. It it just drives me absolutely crazy. In a line waiting to move ahead on a highway, you know what happens. Here they come, zooming up the lane. And I did this, by the way, going to Boston. It was just so irritating to me. So I'm I'm going down this thing. We're in Pennsylvania, and I'm I'm going out there, and I'm waiting dutifully in in the left-hand lane, And and I was saying, so I really, this is not normal for me, I actually pulled out into this outside lane and just stood there. And I just creeped up the outside lane and then, thank you very much. (laughs) Why should they get to the intersection before I do? I've been waiting. And so what we end up dealing with Frustrated entitlement. I think that's what Cain expected. When we, we don't get what we're entitled to, somebody gets what they're not entitled to. It just drives us crazy. That's, I think, what ends up happening in a spiritual sense. We're driven by a sense of entitlement. Spirituality Spiritually, entitlement is like a sickness in our soul. We experience resentment and remorse. These are like poisons that come from frustrated entitlement. In fact, this is what drives addiction. I remember when I was at the University of Pennsylvania and I was learning about what the Bible had to say. And it, somebody explained to me that eternal life was a gift. It's something that you got from believing in Christ. And I was, frankly, I liked that, but it was kind of offended at it because I had been a dutiful religious person all my life. Again, I've told you, I I used to drive my bike to school before school. During the 40 days of Lent, you know, there I am in third, fourth grade, riding my bike, and about a mile and a half, two miles before school, nobody told me to do it, I just wanted, I figured that if I did more things than everybody else did, I'd definitely go to heaven. (laughs) That's the way I, I, really, the way I thought about it, and I'm there with you me see, there's 60, 65, 75, 80-year-old people and there's four or five of them and there I am. And I figure I got it made. Then somebody tells me, the University of Pennsylvania, that eternal life is a gift. Jeez, that stinks. <laughs> it's, like, it's like having paid a mortgage for 18 years only to find out the house is free. <laughs> it would be nice if I had known this 18 years ago. And so the fact that, I wasn't entitled to something that it was a gift it's God you know what I was feeling at that time It made me angry. You know what that anger was that's the anger of the world that's the anger of the world It's the anger at working for something and determining that it's a gift and it's that's what um, that's what. John seems to be talking about, what's the antidote for this hatred? Look what it says in Galatians chapter 5, it's in your worship folder, verses 17 through 21. What's the antidote for frustrated entitlement and the resentment and the remorse that go with it? You know the difference between resentment and remorse? Resentment is when I resent others. Who get what I want. And remorse is when I resent myself for apparently not being good enough to get what I feel like I should have coming to me. And we'd either tend to direct our contempt outwards into resentment or inwards in the form of remorse, but all of us tend to do one or the other. Uh, What's the, what's the antidote for that? Would you agree with me? What we know in the wilderness that resentment stays fresh for 39 years. They were as resentful in the 39th year going through the wilderness as they were in the first. Resentment has lasts a long time. It it doesn't spoil. Well, it does spoil. (laughs) It keeps spoiling. Um, Look what it says in Galatians 5. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. That word enmity means hatred, strife, jealousy. That word for jealousy there, that's not simple jealousy. Do you remember the difference between simple jealousy, simple envy, and infected envy? That word is infected envy. That's when you not only want what others want, but you hate them for having it. Or you hate yourself because you didn't get it. That's what that word is. Fits of anger, rivals, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The antidote to an infection that causes these things is the Spirit of God. How does the Spirit of God operate? What is it about the Spirit of God? that allows us to deal with envy, resentment, remorse, and things like that. The Spirit of God provides a solution, and the only thing it says, and this will be a clue for us, the thing it says about the Spirit is that those who are led by the Spirit are not under law. This is what it seems to say. If you put your finger on the root of what causes resentment and remorse, what you're going to find is a sense of entitlement because I kept the rules and doggone it, I should get rewarded for doing so. There is that sense of law that we use obedience to obligate God to bless us. And when we do what we should do and he doesn't come through, we become angry at him. We resent what we're experiencing in our life. We feel remorseful because of, obviously, we're not... And if you look at all those things, those are indications of being under law. You know what the Spirit does? Now, again, this might seem like you say, the Spirit leads us out from under law. There's two places that people think they're going to meet God. One place is he blesses me if I obey and he curses me if I disobey, this is law, okay? This is law. The Spirit will not lead you under that place, because under this place is where all these things, the works of the flesh, are stimulated by law. Do you know what the interesting thing? There are commandments prohibiting things, but the law stimulates the very behaviors it prohibits. The law stimulates the very behaviors it prohibits. That's why the Spirit of God, in order to lead you to out of resentment and remorse, is going to lead you out from under law to a place where you understand, you know what? I can't be cursed if I disobey because my, he's not counting, and I think really he's not counting our sins. If you're a child of God, then he's not counting. You might say, "Well, that doesn't make any sense. What will cause me to obey if I'm not going to be punished if I disobey?" It's a good question, isn't it? Why will you obey if if you're not punished if you disobey? You know what the Bible indicates that it's the freedom that comes from understanding that you're not condemned that ends up being. That which propels you to obey, not because you have to, but because you want to. That's what the Bible seems to indicate. Look at the root of love. It says, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When it says against such things there is no law, what it means to say is that, The law cannot produce the kind of things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, cannot be legislated. I cannot put the fear of judgment over your head and get you to do love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness... Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those things cannot be legislated by law. That's why if God's going to produce these things in you, what he's going to do is move you out from under a system where you will be condemned into a system where you're not. Because out from under that is where these things can be created. Um, In Galatia, when Paul wrote this letter. They were loving one another, and this is what happened. Paul came and said, you know what? Because of Christ and because of his death, your sins are forgiven, and you're no longer in a place where you can be condemned. And you know what happened to them? They believed it. And because they believed it, it this is really what happened. It started to bloom in love for one another. They started to love one another. There was a sense of freedom There was a sense of wanting to love other people. This is what happened in this place. Some other people came after Paul left. They came and they said, okay, God loves you, but he'll love you even more if you do this and this and this. And these people didn't understand that if I believe that I earn God's love, I am back under law. And what they did, they bought it. They said, okay, God loves me, he'll love me even more if I, and and they started to, again, do more things in order to earn God's greater love. Guess what happened to their love? Anybody? Can you imagine? It, it disappeared. And you know what they ended up doing? They ended up comparing themselves with one another. Rather than loving one another, they started to vie for one another for God's affection. Look at me. Don't look at him. Look at me. And they started to try to earn, and then they started to combat with one another. And rather than praying for one another, they started to pray on one another. It says they started to bite and devour one another. Now, not literally, not literally, but they started to feel, they started to compare themselves with one another. And that's what happened. And so when Paul writes this letter to them, you know what he says? These people are unloving, but he doesn't attack the love because the love is not the problem. The lovelessness is not the problem. What he ends up saying, you are children of God because you believe. So say yes to the good news. And when somebody comes and tries to tell you that you're loved by God and you'll be loved even more if you attend more church meetings, that you're loved and you'll be loved even more if you give more than you give, that you're loved and you'll be loved even more if you read more of the Bible? When somebody tries to tell you that, you say, no. No. You need a good yes and a good no. Because the fact is, if God loves you because of what Christ did, and if Christ did everything, is there anything you can add to what Christ did? If your status is based on what Christ did then is there anything you can do to be more loved by him really I'm going to push this on you really if your acceptance with god is dependent on what Christ did and then is there anything you can do to be more loved by him what would happen if you believe that we have a tough time believing it, and when we have a tough time believing it, we have a tough time loving people. When we are able to believe it, it becomes easier to love people, so develop a good yes and a good no. And if somebody tries to suggest or you listen to something that infers that you're loved and you would be loved even more if you read more, prayed more, gave more, tithe more, fasted more, what we do, just... Off by a covenant. The new covenant indicates that you can't be loved anymore, and when you believe that, that's where love begins to be created. What ends up happening? They traded in Galatia a spirit of sonship for a spirit of fear. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, a father. Rising fear means falling love. The root of hatred is law, comparison. The root of love is freedom. It's the sense that we are accepted, loved, that we can't be loved anymore. Let's talk about the fruit of love. What it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We learn a couple of things about love. What it indicates is that love is a verb, not a noun. It's not something you feel, but something you do. And that's what John is encouraging them. It would have been a little bit easier in that time, I think. Again, the people that John is writing to, they didn't go to church in buildings. They went to church in living rooms. and and in houses, and so it would be a small group of about 20 or 30. What's happening in this place, there are individuals that are pulling people into the understanding that if you're truly spiritual, you really focus on being spiritual, and sometimes that will take up a lot of time. You have to try really hard to be spiritual. You have to try very hard to be accepted. That's what they were hearing. And so they were pulling these people out into a place and they were luring them with these glowing accounts of, oh boy, I tell you what, I'm experiencing some things with God that will just fry your eyeballs. And so they were experiencing this and they were saying, my eyeballs don't fry and that would be a good thing, I guess, spiritually. And so they were following them out the door. And what John understood, that Once they, again, in that place, there was only one place that you were going to hear the gospel in Ephesus, and that's where John or one of his people were. And so to be pulled out of that place, they would move and trade in this sense of I'm loved for free to I can be loved even more. And what they didn't understand is when they left this place, they left the ability to love. Rising fear meant falling love. And uh, they would go into a place where they were too busy being spiritual, to be loving. I told you um, the story. They did it in a seminary where they did an experiment. I think it was a Princeton seminary, and they se- they selected two groups of people. They had them go, and they didn't. They okay. I'll, I'll explain this thing. So they told one group. Okay, here's the deal. You're going to um, talk about going to seminary. Okay, so I give instructions to this group, you're gonna go out and and you're gonna go out to um, tell people about seminary and you two you three rows, you have uh you really need to book because you've, you've got a, a little bit of time to get there. You middle, and that they, they didn't tell them all at once, so they said, you guys really have to hurry, you know, clip, 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 clip. clip. You guys in the middle, you're going to go over and talk about seminary, and, you know, you have a little bit of time. You guys back there, you're good. Yeah, You, you can just kind of make your way over there. So you guys, you guys got your assignments? So then on this side, they said, you guys, I want you to go talk to somebody about the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, the guy who's beaten up by us. By the side of the road. And he stops and helps them out. And so that's the parable. And so you're going to explain that. You guys, you guys have no time. Just get moving and get out there and tell them the story. You guys in the middle, you, you know, you gotta, you know, get out. You guys, you're good. You guys in the back, take your time. So they dispatched these groups. Whew, what they did? They planted people on the way. People that were dealing with things, one guy was hurt on the the steps of a building, and there was another guy that had fallen and needed assistance. Now here was the thing they were trying to measure. If you're gonna go talk about seminary, and if you're gonna talk about the Good Samaritan, are you going to be more likely to stop and help these people than you will? That's, that's the experiment. You know what they indicated? what you were talking about had no difference on whether you'd stop or not. No difference. Do you know what the difference was? You guys in the back who have time, you stopped more often. You guys in the front, you didn't stop hardly at all. You guys in the middle, you stopped. So interestingly, it's not about what we're thinking. It's about how busy we conceive ourselves to be. Now, what they're being told You need to really get busy to be spiritual. And it's that very sense that I need to do a bunch of things to be accepted that keeps us from loving. Again, if we're off doing this and that, if we are focused on all these things i got to do to to please God, that very mindset is going to get in the way of you stopping to talk with people, to find out how they're doing to connect with people, to care about them, your friends. And sometimes we get so busy that we don't connect with individuals as we might. And what John's trying to get these people to do, don't go out with those people that are going to make spirituality so difficult that you have no time to love people. He's trying to get them to a place where they understand that if you're loved for free, guess what that means? You don't need to try really hard to make God love you. you already loved. Therefore, you know what you can do? You have some time to love other people. That's what John's trying to encourage. Um, and this love is a, is a verb, not a noun. It's like what it says in James 2. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I had a friend who was in Bangladesh, and um, he was a missionary there. There were all these little kids in a very poor country. And what he was told as a missionary, don't look these kids in the eye, you know, because we really can't get involved in meeting their needs. The needs are just too great. And so this, this guy kind of did this for a while. He made a mistake, though. He went into a grocery store. And he came out, and the kid was there before he knew it. And this kid looks up at him and said, Mister, could I have some milk? And he saw him, and he looked at him, because he wasn't rushing from here to there. And he ended up, what would you have done if you're seeing this kid? If you're not rushing from here to there, but if you have time to look at him, Look into his eyes. In fact, that's what happened with the Good Samaritan. The other guys were so busy going to and from service that they really never looked at the guy. The Good Samaritan looked at them. And as this guy looked at this kid, and he ended up giving, and you know what ended up happening? The other kids came around, and he and his wife, you know what they did? It started modestly. They started to accumulate some things. Travis talked about or accumulating some clothes for kids at low elementary that don't have clothes. They started doing it like that. They just started accumulating some things and providing it for these orphans that were in the streets. And they created this. It started slowly, but gradually more and more people learned about it. And they provided things as well. So all of a sudden, they get this little storehouse, this storefront thing, where people could come in and get clothes and some food, and then it came time for this guy and his wife to leave. And with the mission agency that had told them, don't look, they ended up saying, thank you. And now they sustained that mission outreach to this day. And it started with seeing somebody, having the time to sit down and look at somebody and talk to them, And find out where they are. It releases a natural compassion. That's what John is trying to encourage these people to do. That's why he wants to stay them in this place where they understand they're accepted. If you understand you're accepted, you have the luxury to care for somebody without being so preoccupied with being better and making sure, God, I want you to see what I'm doing here. (laughs) I'm putting this. Get this. I'm putting the coat in the thing. And I know you like me better because, I'm. by the way, if you put a coat in the thing, God's not going to like you anymore. He already loves you perfectly because of what Jesus did. What will happen if you put I'm not just the code in the thing, I'm not you know what I mean. What will happen to you if you do that? You know what John indicates? When somebody who is loved for free want you listen to me when somebody who is loved for free turns around and gets involved in loving others, something begins to click inside. A sense of, so this is Christianity. Jeez, that felt good. This is Christianity. It's not trying to prove how spiritual I am. It's seeing people and trying to meet needs. It's bringing food. It's caring. And we care about different things. Some of you care about physical Some of you can bring advice. You are gifted in all kinds of ways. You know what starts to happen when a community begins to care for others in different ways? Some of us are gifted doing this and that. As you focus in the way that God gifts you to love, because the truth is God gifts us to love in different ways. Some of you are very hospitable. Some of us are not very hospitable. (laughs) Some of you are so good at it. You open your house and people come in. You don't need to have everything perfect. You really like for people to come over. Some of you are really good at solving problems. You love it when somebody comes to you with an issue. I, You know, I need this and, and you help to serve. So as we evolve in serving others by opening our home, some of you, and this is for some of you, you're good at making money. And again, this is difficult for some of you because it seems really unspiritual. But God gives some of you the ability to make money because then you really like to give it. It's That's, that's a form of service as well. All these things, as we start to love in different ways, you know what ends up happening? We end up reflecting Jesus. He loved perfectly. And as we love in our different ways, it creates the sense of because Jesus was perfect at loving. At the understood he was accepted by the Father. Um, love can fuel law can fuel a form of love. It's the problem with love that's fueled by law is that it's very narrow and very shallow. Love that's fueled by law if you love because you have to It's very narrow. You can only love so many people. And and your ability to give is not very deep. When the lack of love, when it's freedom, that can fuel a love that's deeper and wider. John ends this by saying this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Faith and love are like Siamese twins. Some of you are, understand uh, recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have a number of individuals here who um, understand that and understand what the program is about. Um, interesting, the 12th step says this, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. And to practice these principles in all our affairs. I'm going to read that again. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. What they found is somebody who has, is in the process of recovering from addiction, when you, understanding recovery to some degree, get involved in helping other people in their recovery, it ends up reinforcing your own recovery. It's not that you are, I need to continue, but it's something that spills out over the top. That seems to be the way it works. When we believe in Christ, we understand that we're accepted freely. And as we use our freedom to serve others in love, it is something that ends up helping not only the people that we reach out to but we start to change ourselves there starts to become a sense that we are like him like Jesus we're going to close and have a song as we finish up let me pray for us Jesus when you were here last week the night before You went back to the Father. It indicates that you knew where you came from and where you were going. And because of these things, you were able to show the disciples the full extent of your love. You took off the garments and tied a towel around your waist and you washed their feet. I guess the point is that if we know where we're going and if our eternal future is secure because we understand it's based on what you've done, and when our faith is in that, no, we all have doubts, but to the degree we become more sure and secure in that, it frees us up to serve people. Faith expressing itself in love, that's how it works. Faith in forgiveness, faith that we're part of your forever family, and that frees us to love other people. I pray, would you continue to allow us to learn about our security and safety so that we could leverage that liberty to serve others in love?